Well, good morning. If you want to open your Bibles, as I mentioned to you, we're going to be getting back into our study in the book of Hebrews. It has been some time. I didn't realize it had been as long as it has. I have not actually taught a new message from Hebrews since the end of October. It's been quite a while. With the trip I was taking out of town and some various things I was doing in November and gone in December and gone much of January, I haven't been able to get back into the material. But we are going to begin in earnest what I hope will be a successful march through the remainder of this book. I counted up things yesterday, and I was looking at my schedule going forward, and with the exception of one weekend where I might go out of town because I have family coming in town from California, I think I should, Lord willing, be here teaching every Sunday until the summer. Now, that's famous last words. The last time I said that, Debbie got diagnosed with cancer and our life was turned upside down. Um, But I don't anticipate anything like that. I anticipate being here. And so I was looking at what we have left in the book of Hebrews, and I counted it. We have 84 verses left in the book. We are actually in Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we're going to be looking, beginning to introduce looking at verses 11 and 12. We've covered the first 10 chapters previously. But as I looked through those things, I figured out that we've covered 219 verses. My calculations would be fairly close, maybe give or take, but I think I've done, today would be the 98th message in this study of Hebrews. So, We're not flying through this material, but even with that, I think I can finish the book of Hebrews by the end of the calendar year. So that's my goal. I don't want to ever gloss over or rush through things. There's still a lot of important information, but I would love to be able to finish the book of Hebrews in 2014. So my goal, again, is to begin marching through the material in a systematic way, as I try and do, and I should not have too many disruptions to my schedule, so we should have some intensive time in the book of Hebrews. As a reminder of where we've been, I'm going to do more background than I thought I was going to do when I first started studying the text we're in, because I thought that it was going to be fairly straightforward and I could jump into it, but as I studied and I read and I studied, I realized I needed to give more background because What we're going to be studying is more of a continuation of what has already proceeded than I realized. As you recall, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, which is rightly thought of as sort of the biblical hall of fame for faith. It's a catalog of individuals going back to the very, almost the very beginning of time, because the first aspect of faith is the reality of God creating everything. But even as early as the first individuals on the earth up until later in the Old Testament period, we see all of these individuals who had faith. And as I've mentioned many times, the chapter is not directed at us as a history lesson, although it is that. You can learn a lot of biblical history, a lot of things to cross-reference, a lot of things to do. But the reason this is in the Bible is because no matter how insignificant you think you are or how weak you think you are, if you're in Christ, if you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you have the same faith. And the desire of the writer of the book of Hebrews, which it means it's the desire of God, is that these individuals would encourage us. That we wouldn't put them on a pedestal and say, whew, 
Boy, it's a shame. I wish I could do something like that. No, we can do something like that. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, look at Hebrews chapter 12. I've read this many times. I'll probably read it many more times. The whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 is summarized in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have, we being all believers, including us, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Everything we cover should enable us to put off sin. It should encourage us to live holy lives. It should encourage us to turn away from wickedness. The Bible is always very real. This sin does so easily entangle us. And yet, we're supposed to look at these men and women of faith, and they're supposed to inspire us that we can do what they've done. In fact, we can do it because we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and God is going to enable us, no matter the hardships, no matter the trials, no matter the temptations, to remain faithful. So long as we are fixing our hope on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, God will enable us to do what he calls us to do. Now, I'm not going to be able to go through all of the messages that I've taught in Hebrews chapter 11. I wouldn't try. If you go to our church website under resources and you see Faith Builders teaching, most of Hebrews chapter 11 teaching is on the website. You could go through and listen to it. But so far, we've covered five examples of faith. There's not really an outline for this chapter. It's just example after example after example. The first example was creation. The fact that we can believe that God created everything is evidence of faith. Then we looked at the life of Abel and Enoch and Noah, all men of faith. Again, all placed there for us to draw encouragement from. And then the last several times I taught, we focused on Abraham. In fact, verses 8 through 10 deal with Abraham, but further verses deal with Abraham. Nobody in Hebrews chapter 11 has more attention devoted towards him than Abraham. And there's many reasons we could speculate, but in all likelihood, the main reason is because no one was more significant in the mind of a Jewish person than Abraham. These, this book was originally written to Jewish believers, they were enduring hardship, persecution, other things. There were some who were tempted to walk away from the faith. But at its core, throughout the book of Hebrews, as we've studied it, we see continual references to the Old Testament, continual references to Judaism. And even though Moses was legendary in Judaism, Abraham was the beginning. He was the father. He was the founder of the nation. He was the patriarch. He was everything to the Jewish people. Some time ago, I even read through an example where when the Jewish religious leaders were arguing with Jesus, they even threw out, well, you're not greater than our father Abraham. I mean, you're not crazy enough to say that because Abraham was that elevated in their standing. But for all of that, as great as Abraham is, he's just an example for us. The whole point of Abraham is that we can emulate his faith. We can live faithfully. What Abraham was able to do by faith, we can do by faith. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can live a life as pleasing to God as Abraham did. 
So I'm going to quickly summarize what verses 8 through 10 said about Abraham because what I realized the more I studied is that verses 11 and 12 are following the exact same thing. Verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, I took four messages to go through these three verses when I originally taught it. But everything about Abraham that he's commended for is tied to his faith. And his faith is shown by an actual historical event, and that's what's being referenced here. Abraham, originally, when he's introduced biblically, he's Abram. But, of course, it's the same person. was one of three sons of a man named Terah. He had a nephew named Lot, a wife named Sarah. And the Bible records that Abram's dad, Terah, moved the whole clan to a place called Haran. And then he died at 205 years old. Now, when you combine Acts chapter 7, which adds some additional information, what you realize is that God came to Abraham twice and spoke to him. The first time before the entire family moved to Haran. And the second time... When they were in Haran, God spoke to him again, and Abraham went out. And that's what's being talked about in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. It's that second time when God called him. That's the reference, and that's what's detailed in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. We don't have time. I've already gone through all of that. I'm just reminding you of where this biblical chronology goes. And as I alluded to, as it came up in my studies, Joshua 24.2, again, it's all things we've covered, makes it clear that Abram was not raised in a godly family. He was raised in a pagan household with pagan gods, pagan worship. His father was a worshiper of pagan gods, likely his father before him. There is nothing anywhere in biblical history to suggest that this pagan man, Abram, who had grown up with pagan gods, pagan worship, false gods, there's nothing that indicates he was looking for God. God chose him. God reached down and chose him to be the foundation of his people. There was nothing about Abraham or Abram that was unique in the sense of he earned God's favor. God just chose him, and it changed the course of all of history. So even though Abram was raised in a pagan family, lived in a pagan family, once God spoke to him, he was enabled by God to have the faith to respond. And that's what's being alluded to in verse 8, is that he went out not knowing where he was going. In other words, God called him and said, go. God didn't give him a map, didn't give him directions, didn't say, here's where. He just said, go. And according to the text, basically, he went out immediately. No debating, no arguing. He just went. Now, God did say in Genesis 12, go to the land I'm going to show you. In other words, I'll tell you later, but for now, just go. The only analogy I can think of is, and it isn't going to happen, but God's saying to one of us, get in your car and go. Where am I going? Well, just go. Uh, I'll tell you. Make sure the tank is full and go. Get your family, go. It's just clear that God enabled Abraham to have faith because he didn't question, he didn't debate. He did not know what was going to happen. He just went because God said go. What we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. Abraham lived out. That's the example for us. When God tells us to obey, we obey even though we don't know all of the details. 
In verse 9, says some interesting things about the life that Abraham lived. It says in verse 9, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Now again, when we talked about this in great detail, and I can't go into as much detail this morning, but Abraham was called, he went, and he went to the place where he was to receive an inheritance. And God told him, you're going to receive geography. In other words, there was specific dirt territory that God said, this is yours. Various biblical accounts where you can see some of the boundaries of it, but God said, from here to here to here, this is yours. And what verse 9 is talking about is the fact that for all of Abraham's greatness, he never had title deed to that land. Even though God said, this is yours, I've promised it to you. While Abraham was walking around, he didn't own it. That's why it says he lived as an alien in the land of promise. God directed him there. God showed him where to go. But while he was there, it appears the only thing he ever actually owned was a burial place for Sarah. He wanted a place to bury his wife. And this reference to dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, it's talking about the fact that his entire existence, even though God promised him this is yours, was transitory and temporary. He never had the mansion on a hill that he might have thought might one day be his. He never got title deed to all the land such that he could put a fence around it and say, everybody get out. And yet, despite what must have been some confusion or at least some question in his mind, the core of his life was of faith. Even when he was living as an alien, even when he was in land that God said, this is yours, and he was not able to even have a permanent place to live, he was a man of faith. And the idea being Isaac and Jacob, they were also given the promise. They were heirs, and yet they didn't have any more claim to the land either. But what's most significant here is what we're going to see when it comes to verse 10. Because it tells you how it was that Abraham was able to live as an alien in this land that he was promised was his, his entire life. Because the land of promise, as we'll see in verse 10, has a dual reference. There was physical geography that God promised to him, but he also understood there was a heavenly promise. So he lived as an alien there. Even though he was told, your descendants, I'll give this land, you'll have this land. He moved in obedience. God called, he went, even though he didn't totally know where he was going. And even though God didn't fully lay out for him and give him everything that he thought he was going to have. Again, he lived in parts of the land. By all accounts, he was a very rich man. A chunk of the time, he didn't even have a child. All of this was going on, and yet he was able to live by faith. Again, we know from Scripture he had weak moments where he doubted, where he didn't do things. But the point of this is despite all of the questions or anything else, he was able to live this way because of faith. And verse 10 makes it clear, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This really makes clear not only how Abraham was to live by faith, but how we live by faith. Recognizing that this is not our permanent dwelling place. 
Abraham was on the earth as an alien. God promised him a lot of land that he never actually possessed. He was wandering from place to place, and he knew, okay, this is supposed to be mine, but I'm just wandering place to place. But he never turned his back on God at the core of his being because he always understood that there was a heavenly reality that he would possess. He was looking for the city which has foundations. The contrast in the language there is between living in tents, transitory, and going to a place where he would have roots. And this city isn't some earthly city, but the fact that the architect and builder is God makes it clear this is talking about heaven itself. We don't know all of the scripture, well, let me rephrase that. We don't know all the revelation God gave Abraham. Understand, he didn't have the first five books of the Bible. We can look at his life and we can map out what's going on. That was written by Moses later. Moses recorded it. Abraham didn't even have these written down promises that he could pull out of scriptures to look at. He certainly had revelation from God. God talked to him. But we probably have even more knowledge about heaven written down in God's word than Abraham had. We know more about the promises of God in Christ in detail than Abraham could have. Abraham believed God, he believed the promises, but he didn't know the details that even we know. The point was, though, Abraham knew enough and trusted God enough to know that his hope wasn't ultimately here. His hope ultimately was with God in heaven, and that is exactly what is supposed to motivate us as we navigate this world. You know, there's some parallels to our lives because God promises us peace and joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And yet if I ask for a witness, I think every hand would go up. If you had times where you didn't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and part of it is because we live in a sin-filled world, in sinful bodies, and things buffet us. They come around us. And the point of all of this is that just like Abraham, we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus because he's the one who has secured for us a place in that city that has foundations, that city whose architect and builder is God. You don't have to fret that life doesn't turn out exactly like you expected. You don't have to get too worked up, although it's hard not to, when your hopes are dashed or your expectations change or life throws you curveballs in the vernacular. But this world isn't our home either. Abraham lived as Paul tells us we should live. I, I looked at this verse before. I'm just going to read Colossians 3, 1 to 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I think that is what the text is telling us, in essence, Abraham did. He was able to set his mind on things above, even when everything wasn't playing out, necessarily like he thought. I can tell you through personal experience, anecdotal experience, but more importantly, I can tell you because of Scripture and what it lays out, if you keep your eyes fixated on this earth and your problems and your circumstances, you will get overwhelmed. If you don't have your eyes on Jesus, you can be 
seduced and waylaid and driven to despair by the troubles of this earth. And yet I, I don't have the reference in my notes. As Paul said, all of the troubles of this earth are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Now I apologize for what turned out to be a much longer introduction than I ever intended. But as I had studied and I began to get into this text, I realized I needed to go back and emphasize Abraham. Because despite my initial thoughts, verses 11 and 12 really are about Abraham. I think from my study, that is the focus. So with the limited time left, I'm going to introduce these verses. I'm just going to read them, and I'm going to share with you what changed my studies. And then next week, I'll get into the details of why I think what I think about this text. As you know, I read from the New American Standard Version. Maybe you don't know that. That's what I read from for my personal studies. That's what I teach from. Pastor Steve does as well. Whatever version you have, I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. And it says this, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 12. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, when I'm coming to a text to teach, I always go back and review my notes to remind myself of the context. But then the first thing I do is I read and read and reread the text. If you saw how I study, I actually have a little piece of paper out and I print out the text in wide margins so that I have room to write notes above and below. And I just keep reading through and I write notes. What questions come to my mind? What am I thinking? I wonder what that reference is. Where, where is this? So I go through and I do all of this. And let me tell you sort of my thought processes as I looked at this verse. The first thing is I saw by faith, which of course is the standard of this chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith. Nothing new to see there. Then I saw the reference to even Sarah. So by faith, even Sarah. Again, didn't think much of it. I immediately thought this must be our sixth example of faith. We've had creation and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. Now we're at Sarah. And that's what I was thinking. And as I read through these verses and I went through and rereading and making notes, I thought, well, you know what? You can't get much more straightforward than this. This will be very easy to get through. This won't be too challenging. It seems very straightforward. It seems to follow the pattern of chapter 11. Simple understanding, a simple text. I should be able to get through this quickly, and it'll be done tomorrow, and we'll move on to the next step, which I knew is a very important summary of all of these individuals. But then I kept studying, and I kept studying, and then I came to realize, as often the case, even though these verses looked very simple in my English language version, these are two of the most controversial verses, particularly verse 11 in all of Hebrews. Does anybody here read out of the NIV? Do you have the NIV with you? Okay, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, read to us verse 11 from the NIV. 
By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Now what jumps out at you there? The focus is on Abraham. Now, when I do the text, I'm not proficient in Greek. I studied, like most people who went to seminary, I studied Greek, and I always read through the Greek, even though I am not as proficient. And if you read through the Greek, you see clearly the reference to Sarah. You don't see the word Abraham. Abraham is provided by the English translators. What we have here is a situation where experts have been debating, probably since people started translating the Bible from Greek to another language, what is the subject of verse 11? Is the subject of verse 11 Sarah, which is reflected in some English translations, or is the subject of verse 11 Abraham, which is reflected by the NIV? And so what I thought initially was a simple, straightforward text suddenly became much more complicated. Because for me to teach this, I have to decide what do I think God was intending. Is the subject of verse 11 Abraham or is the subject Sarah? And if it's Abraham, what accounts for what we see in this version? Now, again, I don't want to confuse God's word, but I also want to address issues that pop up so that we can understand how we have the Bible, but also how do we understand these seeming discrepancies? Because God is not inconsistent. God's not an author of confusion. But I think after further study that the subject of verse 11 is Abraham. Now, I will not have time this morning to get into all the reasons. Next week, I hope to go through this some to talk about it. Because some involve very specific language in the Greek. Some of the phraseology and how it is written in Greek and what does that mean. Some of it is driven by the overall context. But this is one of those passages where I thought we were just going to quickly get in and go out. That suddenly I realized, wait a minute, there's more there. And so we're going to look a little bit more about why I think what I think. We're going to talk a little bit about the Greek language, but it also involves us a little bit in the concept of Bible translation, because what we have in front of us obviously isn't what was originally written. What was originally written was in Greek, and in a form of Greek that's not even used now by Greek-speaking people. Unlike a lot of churches, we actually have people here who know Greek, who can speak Greek and read Greek, but even New Testament Greek is a different form, and so we're going to be getting into that. So next week, I'm going to try and explain a little bit of the nature of the controversy. And I'm going to go through a little bit of why I believe what I believe about the text. And I'm going to say all those things because I want us to see what God is trying to teach us from the text, which ultimately is the most important thing. This is here so we can read the text and understand it and apply it to our lives and change our thinking and our actions so that we can walk by faith. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time to do that. So I would encourage you this week, if you have time, reread Hebrews chapter 11. Be good for you to read through in context. Some of what I talk about next week is going to be looking at the broader context of Hebrews because if you look, I don't, I forgot my hard copy Bible. Um, if you've got Hebrews, is it verse 
something around verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11, we see Abraham again, if I'm not mistaken. Is that? That's it. Is it 18, 17? 17. We see Abraham again. So we have a situation where Abraham's the focus, and Abraham's going to be the focus again. And as you'll learn more as we go through it next week, I think Abraham is even the focus here. If you want to look through, you probably in the margins of your Bible will see cross-references to Old Testament text. You can go back through and look through those. There's also references in the book of Romans about Abraham that we're going to look into that have to do with Abraham and his body and all that's wrapped up here. So next week, I think we'll be able to get through these verses in detail, but there's a lot of biblical history that go into these two simple verses. There's a lot of biblical study that go into these texts. So I would encourage you to be studying these this week. I would also encourage you to pray for me. I get nervous when I see two different translations in English. Why do I get nervous? Because those people are a lot smarter than me. I mean, that's teams of experts, countless people that aren't playing around. They're serious. And so I want to be able to communicate this in a way not to confuse you or cause you to have doubts, but that you could understand why rational people might make these interpretive decisions, but also why I think one interpretive decision stands out about above the others. So, I would encourage you to be in prayer this week, be in prayer for me, be in prayer for yourselves, and I pray that next Sunday we will have a good time of study as we jump into this text. One final thing, I will remind you, there's going to be an opportunity to sign up and pray for Lila. I would encourage you to do that, if at all possible. Even if you can't sign up and commit, mark it however you mark it to pray for this little girl. These weeks are critical for her little body, being inundated. Her parents are acting by faith. They're having faith in the doctors and faith in God. But pray for her little body to respond well to all that's being going on. Steve mentioned another issue, and I ask you to pray for the details of insurance. If any of you have gone through medical trials, you understand in America insurance drives things as much as medicine. Lila needs a little walker. It's going to be a sad thing to think about a two-year-old needing a walker, but there's some glitches with the insurance. It needs to be provided quickly, Steve assures me, and Michelle, I'm sure you would verify, but there's glitches in the paperwork. It's amazing what bureaucracy does. We can't live with it, and it can also destroy our lives. So just pray even that those little details will be worked out. Let me close this with prayer, and then prepare your hearts for worship with the church family as a whole. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your spirit that gives us the ability to understand. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. Countless billions of people around the earth are walking in darkness. And Lord, you showed us mercy and we walk in light. We know when we look in the mirror that we didn't earn your favor. We understand when the Bible talks about hell that that's what we deserve. And yet, Lord, you showed us mercy through your son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. Pray that we wouldn't lose the wonder of that. Praise that we would not get so familiar with you that we lose our sense of awe that you chose to redeem us. And Lord, we pray again for little Lila. We pray that you would protect her body. Lord, we pray that these steroids would work. The doctors 
after a year, still can't diagnose what's wrong with her body, but something is clearly wrong. So I pray that these treatments would work, and I pray that the bureaucracy, that something as simple as providing a walker could be dealt with and effectively done so that she can get the the tools she needs to try and and do the work that the doctors think necessary. And we do pray for Jason and Rachel, Lord. They have three boys to raise that need their attention. Pray for their marriage, that you would strengthen them as they go through this trial, and that they would be able one day to look back and see that at every step of the way you were walking with them. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.